0: An Honorable Profession is brought to you by OpenCounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. OpenCounter is a vital tool for communities big and small across this nation. Check out OpenCounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now as a member of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. Check out some of our past episodes with guests like Montgomery Mayor Stephen Reed, Georgia Senator Elena Parent, and Adrian Fontes, the Registrar of Voters in Maricopa County. Each has a unique and powerful perspective on the state of our democracy. It's something you won't hear anywhere else. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. Today is a really unique Honorable Profession podcast. We're in the midst of a terrifying pandemic. It's the most challenging moment in my career in public service and for nearly every person I know in any profession. Not only is the coronavirus requiring difficult policy decisions, it's testing all of us emotionally and spiritually. That's why I decided to talk to a leader who's one of the most inspiring people I know. Washington State Lieutenant Governor and New Deal Leader Cyrus Habib. He's a Rhodes Scholar and a Yale Law School graduate who has quickly moved from the state legislature to the state Senate to statewide elective office. He's the only Iranian-American elected to statewide office in the United States. He's also a three-time cancer survivor, and he's blind. He just announced last week that he will not run for re-election because he's been called to become a Jesuit priest. He's only 38 years old. In this moment of crisis, I felt like I needed Cyrus's experience and wisdom. I was not disappointed by our conversation. I hope you and your family stay safe and healthy in this time of crisis. Washington Lieutenant Governor Cyrus Habib, welcome to an honorable profession. Thanks
1: so much, Ryan, great to be here with you.
0: So for all our listeners at home, today is Thursday, March 26th. Uh, Things change very rapidly, but uh, I first wanted to start with Cyrus's take Washington State is obviously one of the hardest hit uh, areas of the country for uh, the coronavirus. I want to get your sense as to where how your state's doing um, and are there lessons learned for those of us who are a little bit farther back on the curve for uh, how to protect uh, our communities?
1: as you mentioned, uh, we were the first state to report a, a case um, in uh, in the United States and um, that's not uh we 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 often um like to brag about being first obviously this is not a, a um this is not that was not a happy distinction um and because of a uh, particular skilled nursing facility in um Kirkland my hometown um there were uh, unfortunately bef- before um we really knew or before they really knew kind of um what had hit them uh there were uh just a large number of infected individuals who uh were were extremely vulnerable and and unfortunately um uh caused uh, a a large number of deaths in that one facility you know we are an an international hub uh and a gateway to asia and um and so uh, in some ways you know like your home state um, it's not, uh, or in New York, for example, it's not surprising that we would have, um, you know, been, been an early state to, uh, to experience, uh, these cases. And I really am proud of how governor Inslee, uh, has led us and continues to lead us through this really challenging time. Um, he's shown, uh, and, and just so your listeners know, we don't run on a ticket, so I'm not paid to say these nice things <laughs> about him, um, you know, but he's he's really showed tremendous uh, leadership and resolve, and uh, I think importantly um has been as as other governors have um has been um accessible uh, to the media and um and and made uh, experts in in uh, in the administration accessible and others. Uh, to help explain what's what's going on. Uh, I also am really proud of the legislature, um, and uh, I serve as president of the Senate. And uh, what we were able to do before we adjourned our uh, short session this year in the legislature was to uh, draw upon our state's rainy day fund um, in a, a, uh, a unanimous way, I think in both chambers. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was unanimous in both chambers, um, to, uh, to take over, uh, $200 million, um, in, uh, in emergency funds. Uh, and we did that, that, I mean, that began a really, uh, at the very beginning of March. And so, you know, it may seem obvious now, and, and, and it may seem like not enough money now. And, and I don't think that it is at this point, knowing what we know now, but, um, it was really important that, in the midst of everything else that was going on in the legislative session, um, the Governor led us to to make that uh, emergency uh, appropriation so that when, when legislators left, that at least that extra money was there accessible to the Department of Health, to the University of Washington, and others uh, who need it
0: and I think uh, this crisis as so many crises do uh, expose gaps in our systems expose some of the investments that uh, should have been made that haven't been made um, do you have any sense as to going forward both in the short and long term uh, what we need to do to better prepare ourselves for these situations especially for communities you know like ours that are that are tied to the global uh, economy and to the to the larger world well I think um
1: Something that I think New Deal leaders are particularly well positioned to, to do and to take a lead on um, is, uh, you know, in the absence of, of federal leadership, which uh, I think would be ideal on this. But I think one area where we as New Deal leaders uh, can lead the way is around the issue um, long term. I'm going to answer the long term question first is, is, is around um, long term preparedness in our economy you know we are pro-growth progressives and so you know we are thinking about the kind of uh, uh, progressive issues uh, that we care about paid sick leave I think it's important by the way that our state um, and I'm proud to have been a part of this our our state passed statewide paid sick leave several years ago Um, that really mattered in the early days before um, you know we all uh, ended up having to stay home but in those early days when individuals could, um, you know, could could, if they felt any kind of a symptom or sense that they'd been exposed, could stay at home. I think that saved lives, um, faith, paid family medical leave, and those kinds of things. So we clearly, as pro progressives, we are um, working on those kinds of progressive issues. But we're but we're also pro growth, and I think that um, as we uh, now anticipate and today, you know, we got the first inkling of this in terms of job uh, and unemployment numbers. Um, the the economic uh, consequences of this, there's some long-term work that could be done. And I think um, one thing is um, developing policies around business interruption uh, insurance um, and seeing whether um, there can be um, uh, models of uh, perhaps State-run. I mean, we have our, our, our labor and industries, our workers' compensation is, is a, is a state-run insurance program. It's not private, as in many states. Um, so, you know, perhaps it could be state-run, perhaps it could be uh, done in partnership with the private sector, but um, some type of an insurance against um, these types of interruptions. And uh, while there are, uh, obviously, those products exist, um, my understanding is that they typically don't protect against, uh pandemics uh or, or outbreaks even and um they're they're often not mandatory um so you know uh, would there be uh a a uh, a way in which we could proceed in the long term uh to uh, facilitate prep- uh, businesses being more prepared um all of us being more prepared uh against this economic reality uh, we have it in place uh, to some degree in the un- for the workers um, and we've been able to ramp that up, and still we're not doing enough there. Um, but those workers need somewhere to go back to, and if businesses are unable to um, to uh, to stay uh, to stay afloat and to have cash for operating expenses, it's a huge problem. I think that's something that that New Deal leaders are very very well positioned to brainstorm together and incubate. Um, you know, in, in the short term, I think that um, we have to do. Uh, What uh, I I told Governor Inslee this, you know, I were having a conversation about this and and um, he asked my opinion about, you know, how he proceeded. And I said, you know, you are um, the climate change governor. You're now known uh, since your presidential campaign. You're known by the country as a leader on that. And, And your point of departure, your North Star has been follow the science. Don't manufacture the science, follow the science. And I think that that's in the short term. What I would urge uh, all of us as elected officials to do is um, follow what the science is telling us, follow what the follow what the medical experts are telling us. I'm not trying to minimize the economic impacts of these choices, um, and, I, and I'm not trying to uh, kind of abdicate our, um, our policy-making uh, 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 responsibility to, to consider trade-offs, but we have lots of tools. Um, to re- stimulate the economy and to help with recovery, we don't have tools to bring our loved ones back to life again. And so, uh, this this needs to be uh, the healthcare, uh, uh, the well being of our constituents needs to be our number one priority right now.
0: Yeah, I've uh, I completely agree. You, know, I think all of us are under a lot of pressure to figure out which businesses should be exempt and which businesses shouldn't, and what what trade offs need to be made. And I keep saying, look. We got to have a singular decision maker and it has to be our health leaders right now. After this, we can come back and try to figure it out. I think you did put your finger on the business interruption insurance. Um, All the small business owners I know uh, have all been told by their insurance companies that the business interruption insurance doesn't apply in this case. Um, And it seems as though the only thing that Washington is offering our small businesses uh, is uh, an opportunity for loans. Uh, which isn't really helpful uh, to most small businesses, and so we're going to have to think of a new policy approach if we want to both allow people to continue the businesses they've they've been in, but also survive these events which may be happening because of climate change or pandemics uh, or natural disasters or any other uh, any other you know numerous interruptions that will be happening. Uh, in our future yeah I think I
1: think it's I think it's and I, and I think you know i, I want to highlight that um, you know in in uh, in cases like you know like like in California or in my home state of Washington, where we have ordered businesses to close uh, temporarily um, you know it, it's not it's not fair to uh, or accurate to 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 call um relief for those businesses, a bailout, you know, um, you know, a bailout may or may not be justified in instances where, you know, because of the mar- because of market conditions, or, um, you know, underlying economic factors, um, you know, there are, um, you know, businesses that, that, that are facing difficulty. Um, but in this instance, you know, I think we just need to remember that it is in our system of government, in our political system, in our economic system in America. It's an extraordinary use of the government's policing power to tell a you know lawfully operating business to close its doors, um, and, um, and 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 forego their earnings uh, of the business that they've invested in. And so, to me, it's much more like a uh, like like eminent domain even if not constitutionally at taking but it is like an like eminent domain in the sense that we are um you know we're we're um depriving a private party of their economic uh, uh value and i think that we do then have a responsibility um to consider how to compensate them and i know that that's you know it's 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 difficult. It's, it's, we all have balanced budgets. Uh, I think all but Vermont, every state has a balanced budget requirement. And so, you know, I know that, that that those are difficult things. And all the more reason why down the stretch and in the future we need to think about other models. I think that it that include um, you know risk um, uh, risk pooling and um, and uh, and mitigation through insurance.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And hopefully, the new deal will be at the forefront of those discussions because I think you're right. It's the right group of people. Uh, to figure out those models across, you know, statewide elected officials like yourself or local electeds uh, and people who can sort of see see the system from all sides um, and try to figure it out. I want to shift gears a little bit into sort of how you found yourself uh, (laughs) thinking about risk pool models uh, and running statewide uh, systems. I want to talk a little bit about your path into public service and sort of what drew you to it and what's kept you in it through good times. And then these challenging times we are in right now.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know what our listeners may or may not know is that, um, you know, my parents were immigrants from Iran. Um, they came to this country in search of economic and educational opportunities. And, and political and religious freedom, um, like, like, uh, like nearly all of us. Um, and uh, I was born in Maryland and, and diagnosed with a rare childhood eye cancer that took the eyesight in my left eye as a newborn and then came back again, took the eyesight in my right eye when I was eight years old, leaving me completely blind. Um, and I often joke that uh, because that happened in 1989, that's when I was eight years old, uh, all eight years that I could see took place in the nineteen eighties. So all my visual memories to <laughs> the day are still from the eighties. So
0: everyone still looks like Cindy Lauper and Boy George. Perfect. We all have pegged peg jeans on right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and the hair and and all of it. And um, so so we then moved um, a- after the the difficulties of cancer and and uh, and you know my losing my eyesight. Um, the three of us, my parents and I, moved. To uh, Washington State, where my my dad had gone to college at the University of Washington, and we settled here. And um, I was uh, able to travel the road, as I call it, from Braille to Yale, uh, really thanks to uh, public services, uh, above all our our public school system, but then also uh, state services that I received uh, that taught me how to use a cane to get around, that taught me how to read Braille and use. Software on the computer that reads what's on the screen, um, that you know taught me how to take transit and, and get around independently uh, when I was in, in high school, and um, and so because of of the support of my my parents who really believed in me pushed me to to fulfill my own potential, um, and because of the support that I received from um, from government, I mean, there would have been no uh, private. Uh, you know, kind of profit motive that would have provided those services It had to be done by the government. I was given uh, an opportunity, um, to go on and to, and to, and to fulfill my dreams. I, when I had the privilege of studying at some of our, our greatest universities, becoming an attorney, um, came back here, started practicing law at Perkins Cooey, um, our largest law firm here in the state of Washington. And, um, and I, I, uh, got involved with the community where I lived, which is the kind of the, what you might call the Microsoft suburbs, Bellevue, Kirkland, Redmond, um, just across the lake from Seattle itself. I got involved with the community and it was a changing community, um, diversifying, becoming more uh, blue. Um, and uh, there was an opening for the State House of Representatives in 2012. And that's when I, I ran and, and was elected uh, to the state legislature. And, um, you know, for me... My motivation was really driven by, um, you know, th- this same pro-growth progressive approach, um, you know, and on the progressive side, I'll say, you know, I already mentioned that I know firsthand how important state services are to give people a, a, just a fair shot. All of us face challenges, and, and this this coronavirus moment shows us that uh, we can all be vulnerable at various points. Um, And this is a crisis that's affecting all of us, but there's crises that affect individuals all the time, and they're just as devastating and sometimes more devastating even than what we're all facing right now. And that's what happened when I became blind, of course, was that kind of a crisis. So I know that firsthand, and so I I wanted to run for office to, coming from that perspective, be able to provide um, for everyone who may feel left out or excluded, um, give, you know, from our educational system, our economy, or even our political system, and give them um, that chance. Um, and then uh, on, the, on the more pro-growth side of things, as, a, as an attorney who had been working with small businesses, um, helping them raise capital, tech companies, and so on, I, I felt that there was a lot more um, that state the state could do to help uh, promote economic development. So those are the reasons that I, I ran for the legislature, um, was elected, was selected as a New Deal leader the following year, um, uh, ran for the state Senate in 2014, and then lieutenant governor in 2016.
0: And I've heard you speak eloquently about uh, sort of being an outsider as a child, being an Iranian-American uh, who's blind, and... Uh, and do you think that perspective has informed your policy uh or the way you view the American political system? I think it's, um, you know, I, I think it's all,
1: I mean, just like for you, just like for our, our fellow New Deal leaders, I think we're all informed by our personal experiences and it's the totality of those experiences. So certainly, um, you know, being blind, being, uh, Iranian American, uh, those things have attuned me, uh, to, to certain, uh, experiences and, and the experience of being excluded and, and, um, and so on. But the reason I, I also mentioned my experience as an attorney is I think that also matters. Um, you know, our professional experiences also help inform how, uh, we, how we campaign and how we govern. And, you know, um, I often talk about it in, in this way and say, you know, we as Democrats often like to throw the term privilege around, and we use it, I think, um, in an in, in, uh, uh, overly simplistic kind of binary way, either you're privileged or you're not. Um, the fact of the matter is that uh, all of us in some way are experiencing uh, and have experienced privilege, and in other ways um, we've experienced struggle. So clearly as someone who's blind, um, you know, I live in a world that has been designed and, and built and, and an environment that's been designed, built by people who can see, for people who can see, um, and clearly as an Iranian American, uh, who has lived his entire life, um, you know, during this era where those two countries are, uh, are, 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 are nemeses of one another, um, you know, th- clearly th- that identity has been toxic in this country and, and over the, this, uh, this period of time. That's all true. At the same time, you know, my parents are graduate uh, uh, school educated. Um, you know, my mother is a judge. She was an attorney um, during my, uh, most of my school years and so was able to advocate for me and teach me how to advocate for myself which was so meaningful. Um, You know, I grew up just a couple miles from where Bill Gates lives and Jeff Bezos lives. So, you know, in many ways, I also um, have experienced privilege. So I think it's important to, you know, that each of us, as we look at um, our own lives, that we be really clear-eyed about um, the, you know, the the various features of, of our biographies um, and how they've all informed who we are and what we bring to, to what we do.
0: Can I ask, because that's a, a a really thoughtful, nuanced way to look at sort of how we interact with the world. Uh, it feels to me, and we've been in politics uh, a similar amount of time, that we're moving more and more away from nuance and sort of that sort of complicated uh, accepting that complicated reality, how do you bring how do you bring that back to our public discourse because because all of our policy decisions are going to be uh, and the way we interact with each other are, are all that nuanced and that complex, and it can 't just be all boiled down to a tweet. Uh, so what do you see as the future of how we interact with each other you know with that? with those different definitions of privilege and opportunity that we all need to understand?
1: You know, um, I think a lot of times we we put way too much pressure on our public officials, our elected officials, to be um, cultural leaders. Um, we expect um, politicians to lead us in cultural um, uh, uh, evolutions or revolutions, um, and you know, I'm not. I don't deny that um, that, that the that the platform that we're given, the bullet pulpit that we're given, um, the the legislating and, and governing power that we're given, can uh, bring about uh, cultural changes, and that we can. We th- I don't deny that we can certainly um, lead and at the very least participate in those. Um, in, in those changes. Um, but the, the reality is that, um, we as politicians are not, uh, we don't have the ability to change the culture. Um, culture is so, uh, is so vast and complicated. Um, you know, in, uh, in, in our current moment and place, it is so driven by, um, an extremely mature, and, um, and complex and, um, and capitalized media environment. Um, and, uh, with, with, you know, with private and, you know, with profit driven incentives and so on. Um, and so I say all of that in order to respond to you with this, which is that, um, the people ultimately are the public need to, um, demand nuance. Um, and you know we, you know one you know some of us, I mean I, you know uh, my friend Pete Buttigieg, a uh, fellow New Deal leader, for example, you know um, he's somebody who uh, brings a lot of nuance, brought a lot to, to his presidential campaign, brings a lot in his, uh, in his politics, and I was very heartened at you know how well he did uh, despite um, you know being considered the longest of long shots, given his Electoral uh, um, uh, position as a mayor of a small Um, city—that is all, you know. So that's good, but um, you can see by the, um, you know, the popularity of of other figures in Congress, uh, in the White House, that um, there's there seems to be a huge uh, culturally driven, societal uh, desire. For, for a less nuanced approach. And we as elected officials, we as candidates and politicians, in a lot of ways, we're quite simple to understand. We respond very nimbly and very often predictably to um, the, 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 what the market is, is demanding, which is, uh, you know, what voters want. And so if and when voters decide that they want more thoughtful um, you know, more, um, uh, nuanced, to use your word approaches towards, um, challenging issues, then I have no doubt that the leading candidates for president will all behave that way. And they did for many years, you know, you go back and look at debates, uh, between, um, you know, fierce rivals like Kennedy, Nixon, for example, you know, um, Reagan and Carter or, or, you know, Bush and Clinton. And I mean, you know, they were, they were going after each other, but with a, a very, very different, um, level of sophistication tone and complexity in the debate, in my opinion. So if, if that's what the public demands, if the media, um, and, and it's the same thing, by the way, goes for the media, which is that, um, the media also follows, um, what the public demands, so I think what we what we need then is cultural change, um, not driven by a, a politician, not driven by the New York Times editorial page though they those are, are all um, forums, individuals who can be a part of it, but I think that in civil society, we as Americans need to. Um, uh, need, need to start demanding uh, a different type of approach if we if we want to have it.
0: So let me ask, because uh, you said politicians uh, are predictable, and, and I agree with the premise, but last week you did something that was probably one of the least predicted things among people who watch these things, which was to say uh, that despite being one of the hottest young political stars in the country, uh, you were not going to seek re-election and you were going to uh, look at uh, moving into the Jesuit priesthood. Can you talk about that decision? And uh, with the eye that there's uh, this podcast, I think we have a lot of people who are in elective office or are thinking about running for elective office. Not a lot of us spend enough time, I think, thinking about when to leave elective office. And I'd love your insights as you just... Uh, came to this decision? Yeah, um, you're right that it wasn't predicted uh, uh,
1: by, by very many people. I've, uh, I would characterize it's a week ago, as we record this, it was a week ago um, that I made the announcement. And I would say the reaction over this past week was universally supportive, um, but also universally shocked. Um, and um, it is true. Uh, my uh, I've decided not to run for re-election. Um, following these eight years in elected uh, office, and uh, I will be entering uh, the Jesuit, um, which is a religious order of the Catholic Church, um, and uh, and pursuing a, a path towards uh, ordination. Um, and you know, it, it ties in. Uh, I mean, there's there's many reasons I, I could I could put it to you this way that that um, answering the question why why uh, have you Um, why are you uh, following this calling would be like asking somebody, why did you decide that married life was for you? Or why did you decide that having children was for you? Um, Which is to say that there are, there are all kinds of reasons. And then there's some, um, uh, there's, there's uh, some level on which it, it defies um, one's ability to communicate um, and is felt as a vocation. But, you know, for, for me, it, it ties into what we were just talking about, which is that um, I feel strongly that what we need uh, in our country and in our world right now is um, a, a type of healing. You know, I think that we are and and, you know, young people and I, I guess I'd still call myself young. Um, I, I'm going back to school anyway. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm counting you as young but but you know people younger than you uh, and I are um you know uh pe- you know kids in high school right now, people in college right now, you know they are um in so many ways i mean what's what's uplifting is how um you know how uh, motivated by uh social change that they are at the same time they're uh, are just unprecedented. Degrees of anxiety and uh, depression, and um, and and a sense of isolation, Um, and uh, and and we see that in in older people as well. Um, I think that it's um, you know uh, it it is perhaps downstream from economic and political decisions that were made, but it's it's upstream from a lot of the um, you know uh, social ills that we see, like opioid. Abuse, um, that that epidemic, and other and others. So suicide rates, etc. So, um, so we're uh, as a country and as a world. Um, even uh, before this coronavirus and what may come um, afterwards, we already were um, feeling such a degree of I think uh, social disruption um, that I think uh, relates to, to that question of nuance, because people, you know when you're in a state of uh, peril uh, and uh, anxiety, then your appetite for nuance is is probably decreased, so I feel a, a strong calling to continue a life of public service, but rather than, um, than, than, than perform that service in elected office, which has been tremendously rewarding and for which i'm eternally grateful to the people of my state, Uh, I want to perform that service in a very special way that someone can, um, when they dedicate themselves um, to the spiritual life, dedicate themselves in my tradition to serving God and finding God in others, particularly those living on the margins, particularly the vulnerable, the poor, the weak, the sick, the prisoner, the immigrant. So, um, you know, that's, that's, that's my spiritual tradition. It's my religious tradition. And, um, so for me, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a powerful feeling that I could accompany people, um, in that special way. I'll, g- I'll give you just an, a, an example that, you know, even as we speak, uh, of course, we're all as policymakers doing what we can to fight, um, this pandemic at the same time, um, w- what's going on? Well, there are, Um, hospitals making difficult, facing difficult moral questions about um, implementing do not resuscitate orders uh, even without patients' um, consent. There are um, uh, uh, elderly folks, parents and grandparents, who are quarantined and haven't seen a loved one in weeks now and feel discarded and abandoned and already may have been feeling lonely. They might be a widow or a widower um, and um, and already may have felt that loneliness that can sometimes uh, come to those who are older. And now they're afraid, they're being told that they are um, particularly vulnerable to dying um, and uh, are, are, are locked up at home. They need uh, uh, pastoral care. They need, accompaniment, and so those are all, you know, those are different than, um, you know, a business interruption insurance. These are all important, but I began a couple years ago to feel myself drawn towards that other type of public service, Um, and and I don't know exactly what I'll end up doing. The the process of Jesuit formation, they often say, is uh, to be ordained as a Jesuit priest is uh, is reward for a life well spent because it takes ten years about ten years plus or minus to become ordained so so uh, i 've got a ways to go, but these ten years will provide me with um, uh, you know just a, a a tremendous amount of education and experience uh, working in different ministries to help me discern what that what that might be
0: just to wrap up our conversation because uh, I think it may be interesting for anyone deciding to make a shift uh, in their life is there's a certain momentum to all professions, but especially to, to elected life of running for the next higher office and building a campaign and getting identified with the office you hold. How did you make space to have that internal conversation about how you really wanted to use your talents uh in the limited time we all have uh on earth. It's a really good question uh
1: because you know new deal leaders by definition are uh politicians who um are um are are, are successful and uh are probably moving up in office um and have been identified as uh how often do we hear the the term rising star you know and so um I think that then the question becomes, if you're a rising star, what's the firmament towards which you're rising? You know, what's the firmament towards which, um, you hope to, to find yourself, uh, rising. And I, and I think that for me, as I, you know, had this, this rapid rise, three campaigns, three different positions in a five year span. Um, it was in 2016 when my father passed away, um, after fighting cancer for a few years, and uh, I faced my own health care scare um, and and then also, along with the rest of us, began to experience the tremendous toxicity and the shift in uh, away from nuance that that you and I were just talking about in our politics that all of those kind of came together in two thousand and seventeen and and in 20, early two thousand and eighteen um, to, to, to kind of bring me to this moment of, of desolation, uh, which is the Ignatian, the Jesuit term, you know, kind of this the, the sense that, you know, what I was doing, as rewarding as it is um, in so many ways, was not um, leading me towards um, a, um, true joy and true fulfillment, that my kind of appetite for thinking about the next thing Um, was symptomatic of a kind of restlessness and an unsettledness. And, and I think that those, those challenges that I confronted at that moment in my life, um, caused me to take a moment to pause. And that, to your question, can be really hard because when you're, when you're moving up and you're rising, you know, does a rising star pause? I don't know. Um, it can be hard because, um, you know, there's this idea that you gotta, you know, strike while the iron's hot. And, um, and so I finally then had that moment kind of forced upon me to pause and to contemplate. And, um, and I realized that I, I didn't think that this was going to bring me joy. And at the same time, I had the opportunity um, because to observe uh, men and women who had chosen to walk a life of sacrifice and of service Uh, particularly in in the spiritual tradition, including having the chance to meet the Dalai Lama twice and converse with him. Those experiences then showed me um, that, you know, a type of peace um, that I, that the peace that I observed in those individuals um, that, that, that even becomes holiness at the point at which you observe someone so at peace with who they are and what they're doing and their place in the world um, that, that that it can, that, You can experience true holiness by being around them. That became extremely attractive to me as I was discerning what could be the path towards uh, a joyful life. And I I hope that, um, so I want to say that uh, to all those in elected office are considering it, I have the utmost respect for this very, very, honorable profession to use the name of the podcast. It is an honorable profession deeply. And our system of government is deeply honorable. And so, uh, this is not to encourage anyone to leave elected office, but to say that, um, you should enter or leave, um, this or any other vocation, according to a process of discernment that is truly authentic and honest and, and causes you to slow down, um, if you are part of a religious community or spiritual tradition, there are so many um, that are um, rich with tools and techniques in order, uh, you know, that help you to, to make those decisions. Um, you know, I'm drawn and, and, and proud of the, the Jesuit uh, Ignatian spirituality of discernment, but there's others as well. And so I just would urge everyone, I think you'll be a better elected official if you do that. And if it causes you to decide that this is your last elected position, you want to go a different path, it'll help you determine what that path should be as well.
0: Thank you for that. Um, extraordinary answer to a question that I think uh, no matter what office or what profession you have, uh, people, people struggle with finding that peace and finding that sense of purpose. And I think, think you outlined a good way to stop and find time uh, and a space for that in in your life. Uh, Cyrus Habib, thank you so much for joining us on An Honorable Profession. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. um, And I think especially important in this time of not only uh, pandemic and a public health crisis, but, uh, you know, many of us are going through uh, emotional and spiritual crises that you that you spoke of, um, and I think it's important that we that we uh, recognize all those components. and uh, And you you do it so well and so articulately. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ryan. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and and the same to all of our listeners. You too, you too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to an honorable profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable boots row group produces podcast i'm ryan coonerty and because we keep things honorable no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast